Well, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be finishing up the book of First Peter this morning. We're going to be First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and the guys are already passing them out. Anybody need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14 this morning. Starting in verse 5, Apostle Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, and which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The title of my message this morning is How Sheep Ought to Behave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity that we can spend together in your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you bring to our attention things that we need to apply in our lives so that as we go through your word, things that speak specifically to our lives individually, but corporately as a church. Lord, thank you that you know every aspect of what's going on in our lives. And so we praise you for this time together. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, to submit their life to you. Lord, Lord, they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts today. They would turn from their sin and turn to you. Bless also our time of communion together, we pray as well. So we just commit the service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we looked at a pastor's job description, so to speak. We saw how important it was for anyone in leadership to have the heart of the shepherd, having the focus on feeding the flock of God and leading by example through serving one another. But one more one of the major themes, rather, in First Peter is that of enduring through suffering. Twenty-one times in his letter does he address that subject of suffering. He's already written to them already saying, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So he's, he's writing to a group of people who are feeling the pain of suffering. And when suffering is present, good leadership should also be present, especially those who feed the flock of God. But the church needs something else. 
Not only does it need good leaders, it needs good followers because suffering will bring out the worst in people, the worst attitudes and the tensions. Suffering can produce bad sheep, okay? And suffering, people will often resort to, to bad behaviors and tempers will flare and irritations will mount, accusations will fly and pride will rear its ugly head. And sometimes we can all end up on the ground looking up, moaning and complaining. Well, like this. One more. (laughs) To avoid this kind of behavior, Peter now turns his focus from the shepherds to the sheep and how sheep ought to behave. Peter shows us three things if you're a note taker. Number one, the importance of humility, harassment, and then hope. Number one, humility. Look at verse five. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm reminded of the story of a young preacher who preached a message to a congregation on a special occasion. God richly blessed the message and it hit with great impact. The young man obviously enjoyed, uh, you know, the, the appearance of success and afterwards going home with his wife, Evidently thinking over, you know, and enjoying the results of this powerful ministry in his, own, in his own heart, he said to her, I wonder how many great preachers there are in the world. His wife replied, one less than you think. <laughs> many times we make the horrible mistake of not seeing ourselves realistically and we can have a much higher opinion of ourselves. And when we do that, it affects not only our relationship with others, but our attitude about the church and about the body of Christ. Peter here in verse 5 starts off with, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Now, apparently, the the younger men in the various churches to whom Peter is writing to, they were struggling uh, to submit to their godly appointed elders. They had a higher opinion of themselves than they should have. This term younger people literally means recently born again or young in the faith. These were most likely new believers. Now, I've noticed over the years that when churches go through times of of difficulty, that the atmosphere can become very volatile. And often, not always, but often the new believers are the ones that suffer the most because they don't understand that love covers a multitude of sins. They don't understand that humility is the key to holiness. And instead, they want to stand up and stand on their opinions and their oppositions, let them be being known, and really their flesh gets the best of them. That's why Peter says here, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, Peter's written a lot about submission. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, he told us to submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives submit to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 22, Peter writes about the angelic beings that being in submission to Christ. In other words, submission is a part of every single realm of life because submission is a foundational attitude for all of life. No, you can't be saved without submission. 
Because in order to be saved, you have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, take control of my life. I surrender to you. I will follow where you lead. So in speaking of the shepherds of the church or the elders in the church, Peter says to the younger people, submit yourselves to them, to your elders. These young believers needed to know that the leaders were looking out for what's best for them. Now, I don't know if your child has ever done this. I don't know what child hasn't. But, you know, when, 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 you, uh, when, they, when you tell them, hey, look both ways when you cross the street, what's the first words out of their mouth? Why? Why? Well, because someone crossed the street at one time without looking both ways and they got hurt. Hey, don't put that whole candy in your mouth, you know, at one time. Uh, it's not good. Why? Well, because someone, someplace, kids have choked on them. We warn them. So here, Peter's saying, listen, if the leaders are going to warn you about certain things, respect what they have to say. Submit to them. Listen to them. Why? Well, because they know. They've been there. They've been in the battle a little bit longer than you have, and they're watching out for you. Now, the one thing that these elders did know, and that was that in you giving your life to Christ, means your life is going to be quite different, real different. You're not going to be able to hang out with the crowd you used to hang out with. There's going to be this immediate uncomfortableness between the world and your newfound life in Christ. Now, for the younger people during Peter's day, that meant some serious persecution. So Peter said, says, listen to your leaders. They're looking out for you. They're giving you warnings. They, they, they know things that you haven't experienced yet, being young in the faith, and they want to help you. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17, puts it this way. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I like the way J. Vernon McGee puts it. He says, if your pastor is a man of God who is teaching the word of God, then you are to obey the word of God as he has given it to you. It would be better to not hear the word of God than to hear it and not obey it. It's unprofitable for you. So Peter says, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, this is in no way suggesting that the older church members run the church. Never listen to the younger member. Oh, I've been here a long time. You've got to listen to what I have to say. That, that's not what he's talking about. Oftentimes, new believers will see something in, 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 uh, in God's Word that older believers never saw. And, and I love their excitement. Sometimes, I, look what I just read about. This is so cool. And you read it go, Wow, that really is cool. I never noticed that before. So we have something to learn from younger believers. We're never too old to stop receiving from the Lord, working and moving in our lives. Too often, though, there's this generational war going on in the church. And the older people are resisting change, and the younger people are resisting the older people. Peter knew this. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, he's not just covering new believers' attitudes, but, the, but, but all the people's attitudes. He brings it to all of us. Because I have found that older believers can also forget that love covers a multitude of sins. Older believers can also forget that humility is the key to holiness. And instead, they want to stand up and let their opinions and really their flesh get the best of them. Again, that's why Peter says, yes, that all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, again, we cannot be submissive to each other until we are first submissive to God. If you have a hard time submitting to God, then you're going to have even even a harder time submitting to each other. Now, one of the distinguishing marks 
of the body of Christ is that there is this mutual submissiveness that is present. It's, it's ranking ourselves under others. It's a heart attitude that expresses itself in actions that says, I want to do whatever I can to help my brother, to help my, my sister in the Lord, to build them up, to encourage them, to not tear them down just because I think I know more than them. It's an attitude that really is in direct contrast to what the, the attitude we see in the world today. The world teaches us what? It's a dog-eat-dog world, every man for himself. That if we want to get ahead in life, then we need to climb right over each other no matter what the consequences. That's not God's way. In contrast, the church we are to be examples of those who take the lower place so that others may be exalted, others may be built up and rewarded. That's what humility is all about. Peter says, be clothed with humility. In other words, let a humble heart and a humble action be the clothing that covers your life. D.L. Moody says, be humble or you'll stumble. Listen, pride is the oldest sin in the universe and it shows no sign of weakening with age. In fact, it seems to be getting stronger and stronger. It was pride that put Lucifer out of heaven. It was pride that put Adam and Eve out of the garden. Pride ruins everything that it touches. And I would add that spiritual pride is the worst. The danger of spiritual pride lurks behind many of the strong convictions we have, the heated debates we have often get involved in, whether it's in Bible studies or, or social media or just times in fellowship. Those of us who are passionate about studying and understanding God's Word, inevitably we form convictions in such areas as predestination or, or, or the roles of men and women in the church, the use, the use of alcohol, end times, host of other topics. And convictions are a good thing, assuming we're conveying them to others in a humble, loving manner. Now, don't get me wrong. I wholeheartedly agree that correct doctrine is important. We are to handle the Word of God with diligence and care. But the attitude we carry with us as we make our convictions known or teach them to others has the power to draw people to the, to the Lord or push them away from the Lord. I don't really think it pleases the Lord when we bulldoze others with truth without necessary, uh, the, the necessary ingredients of love and humility. And just because someone may not share my view on predestination or free will or assurance of salvation or eschatology, the study of end times, doesn't make them my enemy. just makes them wrong, but, but uh, no. <laughs> it just makes them have, have a different view than what I believe the Bible teaches. But so often our pride gets in the way and we destroy friendships and fellowship because of pride. It's been said pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Humility heals everything that pride destroys. Let me say this, that humility is sometimes found in, in the strangest places. I've read some of the things that President Ronald Reagan said just after he was shot. Uh, what amazes me about his comments is just how humble the man truly was. You probably heard what Reagan said to the doctors before going into surgery. I hope you are all Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I would kind of hope that, especially today. But. Or what the president said when his wife Nancy arrived at the hospital. Honey, I forgot to duck. But even more impressive than Reagan's sense of humor was his humility. And the doctor, as the doctors hovered over him discussing his risky situation, the president politely interrupted, I don't mean to trouble you, but I'm ha still having a hard time breathing. <laughs> trouble you? I, I mean, if anyone had the right to ask for special treatment, it's the President of the United States. But, but, but he didn't assume those rights. 
He simply was not impressed with himself. He was genuinely modest about his accomplishments. In fact, as he was recovering in the hospital, a nurse walked in to find him. Instead of being in his bed recovering, he was down on the floor wiping up some water off the floor with a towel. The nurse was shocked. And Mr. President, we have people for that stuff. And Reagan explained that he didn't want a nurse or an aide getting in trouble for not cleaning up spilled water in the bathroom. Amazing. I mean, a president that shows that kind of humility. As good as an example of humility as President Reagan was, we're to look to Jesus as our perfect example of humility. Jesus laid aside the robes of his glory. He came clothed like a common man so that he might reach men and women with the love God has for them. That's why Peter says, be clothed with humility because he saw firsthand what his Lord did for him. And next, Peter then gives us a good reason for why we should be clothed with humility. In verse 5, he's quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Whoa. That's a pretty good reason to humble ourselves. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want is for God to, to resist me. I, want, I need God's help. I don't need His resistance. The word resist there, uh, and God resists the proud, is interesting. It's a military term. It means to be opposed to. It depicts a full army ready for battle. So in essence, what Peter's suggesting is that God is in full battle array against the proud. Listen, pride is that sin that all other sins really spring from. Pride is that, that starting point. For example, pride is often at the core of lying or bearing a false witness. The thought is, well, if I tell the truth and if I say the way things really are, then people will think less of me, so I'm just going to embellish the truth a bit. Embellish? Or is it a lie? There are many murders and, and, and fights that are a direct reaction from someone's pride being wounded. That's why the, the best defense against pride is a good offense. Two particular plays in particular. Two particular plays in particular. Particularly. Um, first, we need to continually be reminded of our great need and dependency upon God. First and foremost. And secondly, we need to think of others better than ourselves. To stay humble, we need to be reminded of our own weaknesses. Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Secondly, to stay humble, we need to think of others better than ourselves. Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the key. Looking out for the other person's well-being. How does that, that happen? Well, by simply realizing that every single person around you, that every single person you meet is better than you in some way, shape, or form. In something. Because when you start to look around at others and you decide that it's a blessing to know them in some way, then you can't really look at yourself with much pride. Now my natural, my carnal man does not work this way. My mind doesn't work that way. My mind wants to find fault with that person next to me so I can feel better about myself. To find fault in that person who I think may be more spiritual than I am so I can say, well, see, that person isn't as spiritual as you think he is. So what, what, what Paul says is just the opposite. Let each esteem others better than himself. And as we begin to develop that type of mindset, that we're privileged to be with everyone around us, the result will be love and joy unstoppable. 
But it cannot be accomplished apart from our dependence upon the Lord every day, every moment. Therefore, Peter says in verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. I think of the story in the Old Testament, Second Kings chapter 5. There's a man named Naaman who was a great general from Syria, a great war hero, a man of fame and fortune. He was loved by his people. But Naaman had a problem. You see, he had leprosy, an incurable disease, a state of living death in which your body was literally coming undone as your limbs and so forth would, would literally rot and die. And Naaman could not get rid of this disease. But he heard that there was a prophet in Israel who could help him. So Naaman got in his chariot, no doubt traveling with his entourage. He made the journey to the prophet Elisha, pulls up in front of his house and, and no doubt expecting you know, them, him to come out you know, and with some kind of dramatic blessing or healing. But instead, Naaman hears, tell him, go down to the river Jordan and duck yourself seven times and your leprosy will, will leave. Well, Naaman, he left with a huff. <laughs> really? The river Jordan? Why should I go down to that, that river? It's disgusting. It's filthy. I'll go back to Syria. We have better bodies of water there than the Jordan. And as he's leaving, his servant says to him, Naaman, why are you being so high and mighty over this? What if he's right? Try it. What have you got to lose? And I'll tell you why Naaman didn't want to do it. Because to be healed and to follow the prophet's prescription, he would have to peel off his armor. He would have to peel off his clothing and to expose his condition. And it would be humiliating. But you see, God designed it that way. Because before we can expect God to move mightily in our lives, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And to Naaman's credit, you know, he finally did what he was told. He walked down to the river Jordan. He peeled his gleaming armor off and took off his wonderful garments. Showed the world what he truly was. A man with leprosy. And as he walked down to the, to the water, he dumped himself one, two, three, four, five, six times. Nothing changed. But on the seventh time, he goes under the water and he comes up and his skin was like that of a little baby. But he had to humble himself first. Listen, if we want to be blessed by God, it begins with humbling ourselves and admitting that we have a need. Jesus put it this way in Luke 14, 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he will humble himself will be exalted. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. That's what God wants. God wants us to walk humbly with our God. In other words, trust God enough with your life so that uh, you don't live for people's affirmation, but you're willing to wait for God's exaltation. Humbling yourself means submitting to his ways and his wisdom as revealed from his word. It means accepting the circumstances that God allows in your life, no matter how difficult they may be, because you believe and you know that God is sovereign in your life. And everything, despite the struggles you're going through and the suffering, you know that God is in control. God is in control so that He may exalt you in due time. Of course, the key phrase is in due time, in His time. See, God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. Think about Moses. He was, you know, under God's hand for 40 years before God sent him to deliver the Jews from Egypt. Or Joseph, under God's hand for at least 13 years before God lifted him to the throne. I think one of the, the evidence of our pride is our impatience with God. And one of the reasons that we go through sufferings is because God is trying to, keep, to teach us patience. 
So we might learn, according to verse 7, to cast all of our cares upon Him because He cares for you. Listen, you'll never cast all your cares on Him if you're always thinking that you can handle all your cares yourself. See, to cast all your cares on Him means we can't handle it. It means we don't have all the answers. It means we need God's help. I like the way the Amplified Bible puts verse 7. It says, Casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all in Him, for He cares for you affectionately and He cares about you watchfully. Now, I know this might be hard for you, some of you to believe, but God is not overwhelmed with your life. He's not pacing back and forth and in heaven over your problems. He's not, oh, what am I going to do? He's in this, this situation. It's hot. It's tough. And, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I've never had something like He's not doing that. His hair's not turning gray. You know, it's not falling out uh, over the obstacles you're going through right now. In fact, listen to Jeremiah 32, verse 27. The Lord says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So why are we holding on to those cares? Why are we not giving them over to Him? Why are we not casting your cares upon Him? He cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. Now this brings us to our second point and why we should be casting all our cares upon Him because uh, we are going to be harassed. Number two, harassment. Because if you do all those things, humbling ourselves before the Lord, looking to us as others better than yourself, if we're casting all our cares upon the Lord because we know He cares for us, guess what? Satan is not going to be too happy about it. He's not going to be too happy about it. That's why Peter says, be prepared to be harassed. Look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Folks, the devil is real. Not only because we read it in God's Word, but we see it in this world around us. Maybe you read that the California Bill AB 2223 passed State Senate. AB 2223 states that a person will not be subject to civil or criminal liability or penalty based on their actions with respect to their pregnancy or actual potential or alleged pregnancy outcome, including miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion, or prenatal death. Basically, it's a bill that allows the killing of a one-month-old newborn baby without any legal consequences. Passed the state senate, now it goes to the assembly that we need to pray against that. But don't tell me the devil doesn't exist. The evidence of his influence all over the lives of people in the world is overwhelming. That's why Peter tells us as believers, be sober, be vigilant because he does exist. He's not chained. He's not bound for a thousand years. We're not in the millennium. He's hard at work seeking to destroy all that God loves. That's why Peter says, be sober. Some of you may think, well, I got that one covered. I, I, I'm not drunk. Well, that's a good thing, okay? But, but isn't what Peter's talking about. The phrase, be sober, is just metaphorically to speak of being mentally and spiritually sober. Be sober-minded, some translations put it. It means to be self-controlled, self-disciplined, and to think clearly. Now, certainly alcohol makes you not think clearly. It makes you lose control. But, but this goes much further than soberness to alcohol. Let me translate what I think that the intention of, of it is. He's saying, don't allow yourself to be intoxicated by the amusements of this world, but be sober-minded. I've said this many times before. The battle always begins in our minds. Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
Every behavioral scientist in the last several decades have said that the most, most people are governed by their subconscious thought. So what, what begins really, what we set our minds on is what we think about. That's why we need to think on whatever things are true, whatever things are, are pure, whatever things have a good report, good things, noble things, as Paul tells us in Philippians. We're to set our minds on Christ. We have to think clearly, as Peter says, to be sober. And then he says, secondly, to be vigilant. It means to be alert, to be watchful, to be on the lookout, and don't fall asleep on the job. Watch out for what? Watch out for the attacks that come against the weak areas in your life. Watch out that you don't get into a compromising position or situation where you'll be more apt to fall uh, than to resist. Watch out. And then he tells us who we're watching out for. Peter says, your adversary. That word adversary, it's not generic. Peter doesn't say there is an adversary, but he says it's your adversary. The, the devil and his demons are out to get you and harass you and to make your life miserable. Now, thankfully, greater is he that is in you than he's, than he's in, that is in the world, uh, the Bible says. And God will not allow anything to happen to you that doesn't, you know, isn't, doesn't go through his first filter first and for, is for our own good. But that doesn't change the fact that you have a personal adversary out to get you, out to harass you. You see, the, the devil and his, his demonic realm, uh, you know, they have a theater of operations, and, and that's the demonic world in, in a human world. So we're dealing with an invisible army in a visible world. Now you say, well, why is he picking on me? I, I didn't do anything to him. I would say the biggest reason is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his real target. It's not you. But the only reason he would ever go after you is to get to him because he hates Jesus. And because Jesus loves you, Satan hates anything that God loves. Satan is always against the gospel. He's always against Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you are his number one target. He is your adversary. And right now he's plotting and he's planning and strategically attempting to devour your life, as verse 8 says. That word for devour... In the original language means that he wants to, to gulp it down. He wants to, to swallow it up entirely. He's described as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. It's just this, this picture of this restless beast walking back and forth just looking for something to destroy. Now for those of you that have been, for a while, been here for a while, you know I've shared this before. But it's a great illustration of how our enemy works. See, I've not witnessed too many roaring lions walking back and forth seeking what it can devour, devouring an animal, uh, its prey. But in the same family, we once had a family cat. Tinkerbell was her name, and, and in the end she just tinkled everywhere, but that's another story. But I have witnessed Tink the cat seek to devour a mouse, I think. Because if you've ever watched that happen, if you had a cat and you watched that happen, the cats don't kill it right away. They kind of swat it around. You know, they let it run a little bit. Then they'll come and they'll pounce on it again. They'll knock it up in the air, you know, swat it back down, waiting for it to run so they can pounce on it again, swatting it, you know. And, but then the mouse will just sit still, not move, not sure what to do. And the cat will leave it alone just for a second. And I'm sure that mouse is thinking, if I sit still, maybe that cat will go away. But you know, cats, cats will sit there and do nothing because they have nothing else to do. Nothing else to do in life. It's dinner time, bathroom time, that's it. <laughs> Everything is, is dependent upon instinct and attitude and a whim. And it's obsessed for that moment, willing to wait a lifetime for that mouse just to move one more time. 
And that cat, if you've noticed it, it'll, it'll put its attention someplace else like it's not really looking at, at the mouse at all. But you know that it has its eyes on them. And, 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 and the minute that mouse thinks it's not looking, bam, pounces on them again, and then it's all over. And then eventually it's much, much time. Listen, our enemy has the same tactics in our lives. And maybe you're going through it right now. Man, enemy's just bopping you upside your head, knocking you down, and, and you try to get up again, and he knocks you back down again. And the whole idea is he wants you to stay still, to not evangelize, to not study God's Word, to not trust in the Lord, to not take that step of faith. And rather you stand up and pride against one another because the minute you do, he's ready to knock you back down again. That's the devil's tactics. It's been his game since the beginning and it hasn't changed. Satan does not especially want to see you used to bring other people to Christ or to help you, uh, help you help others grow in the Lord. That's why when people get really serious about growing in the Lord and serving Him and bringing others to Christ, you can count on harassment. You can count on being attacked. But listen, don't think for a moment that if you want to avoid being attacked by, by the enemy, you just stop and don't do anything. That he's going to leave you alone. Forget about it. Because you know how that works out for the mouse. It doesn't happen. You think he's going to leave you alone, and, and it's not. He wants you to think that, but understand, even those who live complacent lives, you're still going to be attacked. It's just subtle. And the enemy seeks to subtly pull you back into the world through compromise and carnality. Pastor David Jeremiah had an interesting thought on Satan's methods. He says it this way, quote, If you could sneak into Satan's office, wherever that might be, he's not in hell yet, and take a peek into his files, you might be surprised to find a file folder with your name on it. I'm not exaggerating. He keeps a file on you, and inside that file are all the strategies he's tried on you, the ones that have worked and the ones that have failed. He doesn't waste his time with the ones that don't work anymore. Instead, he uses variations on the strategies that have caused you to stumble in the past. As long as they keep working, he keeps using them. So what is Satan's strategy for you? What's in your file? Maybe your file says frequently tempted to gossip, quick-tempered, prone to coveting, jealousy, weak in the area of lust, struggles with pride. Don't kid yourself. He knows very well where our vulnerabilities are. But here's what God says. If you'll be sober, if you'll be vigilant, resisting the enemy, you will be successful. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because pride is Satan's great sin. It's one of the chief weapons in warfare against the saints and against the Savior. Yet God wants us to be humble. Satan, Satan wants us to be proud. So that when you and I resist that prideful attitude, we are resisting the devil. And the Bible says he has to flee. Jonathan Edwards said, the best protection one can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. I like that. Look at verse 9 now. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We as believers, we all suffer like the enemy is out to get all of us as believers, no matter where you are in the world. But the cure is the same. Peter says, resist him. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How can he be resisted? By being steadfast in the faith, he says. Notice the definite article, the, in verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith. It's important. He's not saying resist him steadfast in faith. 
He's not talking about your faith or our faith. It's the faith, which is this. It's the truth that's found in God's Word. It's the truth embodied in Scripture. That, that's the faith. In Jude, uh, verse 3, Jude said, Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He was speaking about the body of truth that has been passed down by the Holy Spirit, the written Word of God. Think about this. When Jesus was tempted there in the wilderness by the devil, he used Scripture. He said, it is written three times. He said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He said in Matthew 4, 7, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in Matthew 4, 10, Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, can I just say, You've got to know what is written before you can say it is written. <laughs> That's why Christians need to know their Bibles. Otherwise, when we're attacked, we're, we're going to go, okay, okay, what's that verse? Okay, God helps those who help themselves. No, that's not in the Bible. Okay, okay, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. No, that's not in the Bible either. How about submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. That's in the Bible. That's written. Listen, I believe ignorance of God's word is at an all-time high. And as a result, Christians are being knocked around and attacked like never before. Why? Well, because many don't know the truth of God that sets them free. Or they know some truth or some half-truths and they end up walking around in a shameful state, constantly being harassed by your enemy and embarrassed because they haven't spent the time in God's word. But if you take the time to know the truth of God's Word, the Bible says that it's the truth that will set you free, then you're free indeed. Because again, there are areas that the devil knows in your and my life that is our weakness, and he'll attack those places where we're most weak. But if we prepare ourselves with the Word of God, if we resist Him, if we submit one to another, then we can look forward to our future in great hope, with great anticipation. And that brings us to our final point, point number three, our hope. There's hope for the harassed. Look at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, Now, but, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, even though we may be suffering in this present time, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Even after all of Peter's failures, after Satan tried to sift Peter as wheat and devour him like a lion, Jesus perfected, established, strengthened, and settled Peter, and he will do the same thing for you and for me. See, uh, you see, Peter served the Lord the rest of his earthly life faithfully until he was, according to tradition, uh, cruelly crucified, upside down, martyred, and now he is perfected, he is established, he is strengthened, and he is settled in heaven. And that is all of our hope as well as believers. No matter how much we are harassed in this life by our enemy, he is ultimately defeated and we are ultimately the victors. Why? Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. As the old hymn says, I dare not trust the, the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love in verse 11 that this big, burly fisherman just burst out in praise. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because Peter knew the outcome of this life and living for Christ. 
He knew that he would be with his Savior one day. And that's what we're all looking forward to today. C.H. Spurgeon describes the things that God has prepared for us in heaven one day. He begins by quoting 1 Corinthians 2.9. I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And he goes on. Yet the eye has seen wonderful things. There are sunrises and sunsets. Alpine glories and ocean marvels which, once seen, cling to our memories throughout life. Yet even when nature is at her best, she cannot give us an idea of the supernatural glory which God has prepared for His people. The ears heard sweet harmonies. Have we not enjoyed music which has thrilled us? Have we not listened to speech which has seemed to make our hearts dance within us? And yet no melody of harp or charm of oratory can ever raise to us to a conception of the glory which God has laid up for them that love Him. I think of how beautiful it is outside today. Just the, the blue sky, the green grass, the trees. It doesn't compare to the glory that we're going to spend in heaven. It doesn't compare. Listen, if you don't have the hope of heaven, the assurance that when you die you will spend eternity, to eternity with Christ, then I encourage you, do not leave here without making that commitment. Turn from your sin. Bible says, repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Finally, let's close out these verses this morning as Peter closes out his letter and then we'll enter into time of communion. Peter sends his regard, verse 12, says, by Silvanus, our faithful brothers, I consider him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you and so does Mark, my son. Silvanus, sometimes referred to as Silas, he was often a traveling companion with Paul. Mark is probably John Mark, the young man that was ticked off the missions team at one time, but then Paul later, after he got his act together, became a valued assistant. The place Babylon here is not the Babylon near the Euphrates River. That was, was not a significant place during this time that Peter wrote this. Uh, you know, the, the Christians called Rome Babylon, and they also referred to the entire Roman system as Babylon. Revelation, you'll read about a religious system, Babylon, and a real city, Babylon. Uh, and then verse 14, Peter says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the way first century believers greeted one another, it was with a kiss of love, men, kiss, men kissing men, women kissing women. I say, how about a good handshake? Good hug? I'm okay with that. Years ago, we had a, a little guy from Northern California. He'd come and visit once a year. Just the sweetest man. And he's since been home with the Lord. But he would come up, had arthritis on his hands and stuff. He'd come up, oh, how are you? And he'd give you a big old kiss right on the cheek. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you. You know, I remember one time we had this worship leader, big guy. And, and the first time he ever met him, came and gave him a big kiss on the cheek. He was like, just, oh, I just got as big as baseballs. But, yeah, I think a, a occasional hug is okay. But, uh Finally, as we enter into communion, here's the point. There is fellowship that we can have with one another as we seek to honor God in every area of our lives. We learn as God's sheep how we need to have humility, even when we're being harassed, how we need to know that we have hope because we have a Savior who loves us and gave His life for us. That's what communion is all about. Remember what Jesus did for us upon the cross. The Bible tells us when we spend time in communion, we're not to do so and an unworthy man. And that doesn't mean you, you need to be worthy as in perfect, because if that were the case, then none of us could ever receive communion. No, it's not about uh, worthiness, but an unworthy manner speaks of, of receiving it like in a, a, realist, uh, a ritualistic way, or wanting to just 
get done with it or maybe you're preoccupied. No, the Bible says when you come to the communion table, pay attention to what we're about to do. Now, these elements, they're not going to turn into the body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe in transubstantiation here at Calvary. What we do believe is that these elements remind us of the, the night before Jesus was betrayed, the night before He went to the cross for us, and so we want to receive them with that attitude of reverence towards the Lord. But we also know that the Bible tells us that when we receive these elements, we need to examine ourselves. And I would say, first and foremost, you need to examine yourself to make sure that you are a believer. Because communion is for believers only. Non-Christians should never receive communion. Don't even think for a moment that this is going to get you closer to God. Because the Bible says if you receive communion without believing in the one they represent, you're, you're literally eating and drinking judgment to yourself. It's almost like you're mocking God. So, you know, if you think, well, I'll just be a little more religious, I'll take communion. I would say, please don't. The best thing you can do is let it pass if you don't believe. Not, not the best thing. The best thing you can do is give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender to Him this morning. Tell Him you're sorry for your sin. Ask Him to forgive you. Commit your life to Him, and He will forgive you. He'll fill you with His Holy Spirit, and He'll give you that hope in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Lord, that we can spend this time closing out this study really on, on humility, Lord. And we look to You, and we see what You did for us. You left the glories of heaven and came to this earth as a man. Lord, there's, there's no one more humble than that. Lord, then you allowed mankind to beat you. The Bible says that you were beat, beaten with whips, a cat of nine tails, just ripping your body to shreds. And then they put you on a cross. They crucified you. At any given point, you could have said, I'm done. I'm not doing this. But you humbled yourself because of us. You loved us that much. Lord, we are humbled by what you've done for us. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that has never come to the realization of what you've done for them, now would be the time. Now would be the day that they would say, Lord, I want you as my Lord, my Savior. I want to give my life to you. Forgive me of my sin. Lord, so they can receive communion with us. It's just a simple prayer of the heart. Heart of faith saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want my sin forgiven. Lord, for us that, that do know you, allow this time to be a time of praise, a time of self-examination, Lord. If there's anything going on in our lives, <laughs> if, there, if there's a file that, that Satan has that, that he's been using against us, Lord, help us to confess those, those, those sins. Give them to you, knowing, Lord, that your word says that you are faithful just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for your love and grace towards us. Bless this time of communion, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.